This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Jamie Fugelston. I'm the Director of Congressional Relations at the Rand Corporation. It's my pleasure to welcome you today to our briefing, Informing Investments in High Quality Preschool. RAND has been studying early childhood programs for decades. Today, we're going to discuss what the highest quality evidence says about the short and long run effects of high quality preschool programs and the associated costs, benefits, and economic returns. Today's presentation will address some of the most pressing questions on this topic, including does preschool work? What return on investment can be expected from preschool programs? What features of preschool programs are critical to realizing these benefits? And what challenges remain to, to high-quality preschool programs? So today, um, leading today's discussion is Lynn Carley. Lynn is a RAND economist and a uh, RAND senior economist and a professor at the Party RAND Graduate School. As we look at the arena of preschool policy, there are a number of key issues, whether we're talking about the federal, state, or local level. Um, one of them is ensuring access to programs, particularly for children today who are least likely to have the opportunity to participate in programs like preschool programs before they enter school. A key, a second key is that there was, those programs are high quality. So how do we monitor, incentivize, and reward high quality programs? High quality in part depends upon the quality of the early care and education workforce. So growing and supporting that workforce is also key. And then there are other elements of a system level to support high quality programs as well as the workforce. So having those system level components in place, including a linkage between the early care and education system and K-12 education. And then lastly, of course, issues about how we pay for all of this. So these are some of the issues that we are researching at RAND and we're gonna be talking about a number of these in today's presentation and how research can inform our understanding of these issues. In particular, I'm going to draw on a number of RAND studies that I've worked on with other colleagues over the years. Um, there are several of them that you've been provided. Others um, are available at RAND.org. Uh, we're happy to follow up with any particular publications or documents that would be helpful to you. So today's presentation has four key messages. First of all, preschool works. But in order for preschool to work well, high quality is the key. We know that providing high-quality programs costs. It involves significant resources, but it's worth it. At the same time, ensuring high-quality programs is a challenge. So uh, in part, I'm going to be drawing on a report that you were provided that was conducted as part of a study we did for the city of Cincinnati, uh, which is one of a number of cities that's been investing in high-quality preschool programs. And so as part of that study, we asked two questions. What's the evidence that preschool works? and what's the evidence that preschool pays off. So those are related to uh, several of my messages today. So let me start with um, the evidence that preschool works. And here we look to multiple evaluations using rigorous methods of full-scale preschool programs that demonstrate that there are gains in school readiness and when children have been followed longer, longer-term benefits. So let me talk a little bit about that evidence. We looked to evidence related specifically to what we referred to as full-scale programs. So we were interested in programs either operating at a national level, ones that states were implementing, 
or ones that were being implemented by local school districts. So we're taking off of the table small-scale demonstration programs. For example, Perry Preschool, which is one you may have heard of, and focusing on the evidence <coughs> from rigorous evaluations of programs operating at these different levels. And then the rows of this table are a series of states um, that have undergone rigorous evaluations of their preschool programs, again, operating at scale. These include programs that are typically targeted, like Head Start, which is available to children and families, primarily those whose income is below the federal poverty line. Many of the other state programs target at-risk, typically low-income families. But this list also includes several programs that are universal. In other words, they're available to all children regardless of family circumstances. And examples there would be um, Oklahoma's universal preschool program, which has been evaluated at the state level, as well as specifically in the Tulsa School District. When we look to the research evidence, um, one body of this research looks at the effects of these programs, high-quality preschool, on children's school readiness. And when we talk about readiness for school, there are a number of different dimensions that we look to. One of them is early math skills, and there are specific assessments that are given to children, and we can track their developmental gains over the year that they're in preschool. And this chart right now is showing you um, what the evidence says from the evaluations for each of these uh, different preschool studies. Uh, not all studies measure all the measures that I'm going to show you, all the developmental domains. So a white square means that a study actually did not measure that particular um, indicator of children's development. When uh, studies did um, evaluate development on a particular domain, like early math skills, if the effect was favorable and statistically significant, in other words, it improved children's readiness in that domain, we've colored in the square green. And where the study looked at that particular domain but did not find a favorable effect, typically an insignificant effect, we're shading it in in yellow. So here in the case of the early math skills, what we can see is that most studies actually did measure this domain of development. And when they did measure it, we see more green squares than yellow squares. In other words, most of these preschool programs demonstrated benefits for children in terms of their early math skills. Well, now I'm going to add in a number of other domains that these studies assess. Um, they include um, early reading and writing skills, vocabulary, uh, awareness of print, which is typically the idea, does a child know which way a book, um, you hold a book, and, and front to back and up and down, um, as well as a general measure of cognitive readiness. So all of these studies measured at least one of these domains. You can see, though, in many cases, um, studies are not measuring all of these um, developmental domains. Sometimes they focus on one or two, just a handful. But when they do measure these different indicators, by and large, they're showing favorable and significant effects. We have more green squares than we have yellow squares. And these significant benefits are occurring um, at least in one domain across each of these studies. Now, the other thing we look to as researchers are not only are these effects statistically significant in the right direction, benefiting children, but what's the magnitude of the effect? Are these meaningful changes in children's development? So here we look to a measure referred to as an effect size, which is a standardized measure of program impact, so that as we look across these different measures, they're comparable in using this number called an effect size. Um, when we see effect sizes of around 0.2, that's typically thought of as a small effect size, 0.5, a medium effect size, and 0.8, a large effect size. But actually, in the education field, if you see effects 
from a particular intervention or program in the 0.2 to 0.3 range, that's actually a big accomplishment because many edu education interventions have considerably smaller effects than that. So you can see again here with my pre-math skills for those green squares that we have uh, effect sizes ranging from around 0.2 on up to about 0.6. And now as I fill in the rest of the chart with the green squares, you can see that this is typically um, the kinds of effects that we're seeing are in the 0.2 to 0.4 to 0.6 range. Some actually get up to an effect size of 1. Um, and so while there's a range of magnitudes, they're all in that um, level of magnitude that suggests that these are meaningful changes in children's readiness for school. One of the things that we can learn from evaluations like the one done in Oklahoma is whether or not children uh, regardless of their circumstances, can benefit from preschool. Much of our evidence, as I said, is really about targeted programs. But the Oklahoma study allows us to look at the effect sizes um, in different domains across children with different backgrounds. And so here I'm looking at the pre-reading, early reading skills. And on the previous chart, the overall effect was an effect size of 0.8. When we look at that effect size broken out by race ethnicity, we see that all different race and ethnic groups in the Tulsa, Oklahoma School District, where the program was implemented and evaluated, had favorable and significant effects. And these are magnitudes that are well in that large size. Likewise, the Oklahoma study allows us to look at children's performance, their benefits from preschool, based upon their eligibility for free and reduced price lunch. That's an indicator of economic status. Um, so those who are eligible for a free lunch are the ones that have the lowest family income on up to those who would not be eligible, which means their income is above 185% of federal poverty. That's the higher income group. In fact, that's not a very high income group. That's still a quite modest income level. But across these three tiers that are shown here, you can see that there are somewhat larger effects for the children in the two lower income groups relative to the children in the higher income group. But even those children can benefit as well with effect sizes that are, again, in that um, medium to large range. The other thing we often hear uh, from those who try to digest this research evidence is that um, while we may see these benefits from preschool participation right at school entry in terms of school readiness, like the measures I've been showing you, um, these, these effects may eventually fade out. In other words, as we continue to follow children, whatever advantage they might have had was an early advantage, but we don't see that as we continue to follow students. Well, that is indeed a finding in some of the research, but I wanted to point out that there are a number of other studies that show that the benefits from preschool participation can be lasting. And here, I've got a subset of studies that have longer-term follow-up, um, four of the state evaluation and two of the district evaluations. And I'm showing results for reading and math scores, so these are academic achievement measures. And the, the box shows that these are, when they were measured, again, favorable and significant effects when they're green boxes. And I'm showing the latest grade at which these effects were still evident um, for children who had participated in preschool. So at least by grades four and five, and in some cases as late as grade eight, we're still seeing benefits, in other words, larger, um, better performance on academic measures for those who were in preschool versus those who were not. We also see in a few studies that they've measured grade retention, special education use. Those are also favorable and beneficial effects. In other words, reduced levels of grade retention, reduced use of special education, again, with effects that persist through at least the early elementary grades and even longer. Two of these studies have measured the effects of preschool 
on high school graduation and again see favorable and significant effects um, through the school age years. And then lastly, one of these studies has a measure of crime because they followed participants from the preschool or not preschool into um, their late 20s and seen favorable significant effects in terms of reduced levels of crime. So this is evidence that preschool programs can have longer lasting effects, if not in the achievement domain, certainly in these other areas like reduced special education use, grade retention, and higher rates of high school graduation. Now I want to say a little bit about why we might see the fade out phenomenon when it does occur. We might also call this catch up because in reality what happens is not so much that um, the preschool participants lose ground, but it's the children who did not participate in preschool who catch up to their peers that did. So we might think about this as catch up or convergence rather than fade out. So there are a number of possible explanations for why we might see this and research is starting to shed some light on this. One is that many teachers, when they get their class of kindergartners, will have a mix of children, some of whom have been in a high-quality preschool program and are ready to go, have those kind of advantages that I referred to earlier. But they'll also have other children who did not have that kind of experience. And so in order to bring those children up, they may be focusing more time on helping those children who are behind catch up. And the children who are ready to advance because they've had that high quality experience um, engage in activities that are more repetitive rather than an opportunity to really continue to leverage that early learning experience. Likewise, we're seeing some evidence that uh, kindergarten programs, even elementary grades from first grade to third grade, haven't always adapted their curriculum in recognition of the children who've been in high quality preschool. So again, we're seeing that the, the content of what children are being asked to learn in kindergarten and first grade, in many cases, is repetitive of what children, um, particularly those who had the high quality preschool experience, uh, already have those skills and would be ready to um, move forward. So some of the solutions that we might look to, um, one is that as we reach higher rates of participation in high quality preschool, in other words, if I have 80%, eight out of 10 children in my classroom as a kindergarten teacher have had that high quality preschool experience, I'm gonna be able to move more of those children forward, change my approach, and have a smaller number of children who need to catch up. Likewise, we also know it's critical that we see a better alignment between what uh, the curriculum looks like in high-quality early learning programs and what happens once children reach the elementary grades, like kindergarten and beyond. So that alignment between preschool and our early elementary grades is sometimes referred to as P to 3 education approach, so a continuum from preschool onto the early elementary grades. So what have we learned in terms of preschool works? We know that high quality preschool programs operating at scale, and I've been talking about programs that are um, either at the district, state, or national level, can produce meaningful gains in school readiness, especially for more disadvantaged children, but we see children across the spectrum benefiting. When we have longer term follow-up, we see that there are sustained gains, so there's not necessarily the kind of fade out that has been evident in some studies. And we know that we also need to capitalize on that early investment, particularly through the alignment between the preschool experience and the early elementary grades as a way to ensure that that early investment is sustained. So my second message, um, and one that really relates to the first, is that what we know is that high quality is the key. So in order to achieve these kinds of results that I've been talking about, we have to deliver high quality preschool programs. 
And I'd say uh, this is an area where we're still learning about what high quality is, but we know from the kinds of programs that have been evaluated and the evidence that they work, that those programs are at least doing something right. So we make some inferences about what high quality is based upon what we know about effective programs and how they're designed. So to illustrate, this chart lists some essential elements that um, researchers have identified based upon this research base of the supports for both educators and young learners that are associated with high quality and produce the kinds of results that I've been talking about. We might think about these as primarily structural aspects of preschool programs in their classrooms. They include teachers. All of the programs that I've been talking about have lead teachers who have at least a bachelor's degree or an early learning credential. And in many of these programs, they're compensated the same as their teacher peers in kindergarten and early elementary grades. So the lead teachers and their preparation and background and training and their compensation matters. We know also that effective learning takes place in classrooms where typically we would have two adults, uh, a lead teacher who would have, for example, the bachelor's degree and a paraprofessional or assistant teacher working with them, and that the ratios are such that we might have, for example, a maximum group size of 22, which means a ratio of two teachers to 22 children, 1 to 11 ratio, or even ratios like 2 to 15 uh, might be ones that we would expect to see in high-quality programs. The programs that I've been talking about, while some include part-day programs, we're seeing that um, much of the benefits comes from programs that operate on a typical school day, six to six and a half hours, and at least for an academic school year, like 180 day a year. In addition, um, programs that are inclusive in providing special supports to children who may have um, special needs or who are English language learners, that those types of programs are also effective with this broader spectrum of children um, based upon their underlying needs. Other essential elements really relate to, relate to more to what we might call the process. What does learning look like in these preschool classrooms? And here, one of the features that we talk most about is the interactions between teachers and children, and that those interactions create a rich environment for learning in terms of language acquisition, in terms of higher order thinking skills. And those are skills that teachers acquire um, and can promote when they're in classrooms and in settings where there are age-appropriate learning standards so that there's strong guidance for teachers about what the expectations are for children to learn in um, the preschool year or years, um, both covering academic skills but also social and emotional learning, and that, that those learning standards align with what's going to happen once those children enter kindergarten. Likewise, there's a proven curriculum that is aligned with those learning standards and uh, with teacher professional development to make sure that curriculum is implemented well. Teachers also need to have access to what we refer to as formative assessments. These are tools they can use with individual children to see where they are in their learning, and then the teacher can adapt that child's particular learning uh, activities to match with where they are developmentally. Likewise, um, we see that having data and information that drives decisions both at the level of the classroom and what teachers are doing, for example, from their formative assessments, but also that that information aggregates to how leaders in um, programs, preschool programs, whether they're in an elementary school or they're in a standalone um, uh, private provider, that that data and information is available to them to inform their actions and decisions about their programs. And even at a system level, that that information is aggregated and informs the way um, that a locality or state or the federal government may support these programs. 
And finally, professional development is also key because that supports teachers and their ability to provide this high quality learning experience. Coaching is one of the methods that's being used most often now to achieve the kinds of high quality teacher-child interactions through the coaching process, the modeling of these techniques, and the feedback that teachers receive. So in terms of quality, quality is key, and we know that from elements of quality that relate both to some of these structural aspects, but also, most importantly, teacher-child interactions and the instructional supports that go with them. The use of a proven curriculum that's implemented well is also important, as well as supports for teachers through aspects like their compensation, coaching, and professional development. And that we also need a systematic approach to monitoring and improving quality, that data and feedback that helps um, educators and uh, providers learn about what they're doing and how they can make it better. A third message that I want to highlight is that the kinds of quality that I'm talking about, that um, has real consequences in terms of the resources requirement. But those investments are key to getting the kind of results that we want to see and that they're worth it in terms of the benefits and the payback in terms of the economic returns. So just to illustrate what we're talking about in terms of cost, this chart shows you uh, some of the estimates that are available in roughly today's dollars uh, for four of these um, state and district programs. And we don't have such cost estimates across the board, but these are examples where uh, programs either at state or district level are spending anywhere from about $9,000 per child on up to $15,000 per child. These differences reflect in part some of the cost differences in these different parts of the country, but also choices about how many hours a day programs are offered, uh, the nature of the compensation structure for the teachers, and the set of supports that are offered. But from the evidence that I showed you earlier, the kinds of impacts that we could see from preschool programs, we can ask, well, what are those benefits look like, and how do they compare to the costs required to have a high-quality program? So to illustrate, um, as an economist, I look at this and say, well, if I see something like reduced use of special education, that's a benefit to the public school system and the savings because it's much less costly to educate a child in a regular classroom than in a special education classroom. So that's savings to government. Likewise, when we have reduced grade retention, that's savings to the public sector and the education system. When we see the evidence that high-quality preschool programs can eventually lead to higher rates of high school graduation, those are benefits to the public sector because now we're talking about a child as an adult who's going to be a more productive member of the labor market, have higher earnings, pay higher taxes. We also see other benefits that flow from that, typically things like reduced social welfare costs. But the preschool participants themselves benefit. They have higher education. In many cases, they're going to go well beyond high school. They have higher lifetime earnings than they otherwise would have experienced. And then another category we can look to in terms of tallying up potential benefits are when we see reductions in things like crime, criminality, delinquency. Those reduce the cost for the criminal justice system, so another form of savings to government, but also produce benefits for other members of society who would have been potential crime victims. So we can actually tally up, because of the reduction in crime, the savings from lost property, the lost um, uh, bodily injury, and even reductions in pain and suffering associated with more um, serious crimes. So what we do uh, then in asking this question about does preschool pay off is we tally up the dollar value of all of these benefits and any others that we can identify from 
the evidence, the research evaluations, and then we compare the sum of all of those benefits to the investment in terms of cost. And we recognize, of course, that costs are typically occurred up front. The benefits are something that occur through time. Um, and we do that by discounting and using other methods that um, reflect that pattern of when benefits accrue relative to the cost. But the bottom line is that when we look at benefits to costs, um, we see for those programs where we have this kind of evidence, and here I'm listing Head Start, state and district programs as a, as a group where they've been analyzed collectively in terms of their impacts, and the Tulsa um, version of uh, the uh, Oklahoma Universal Preschool Program, and I'm showing results specifically for the full-day program. They also operate a part-day program, and separately for the three groups based upon eligibility for free and reduced-price lunch. And what we see in each of these cases, I'm plotting the ratio of benefits to cost. So for example, in the meta-analysis of the, the aggregate average effects across state and district programs, the meta-analysis shows program benefits of approximately $30,000 per child relative to a cost of about $7,000 per child. That's a ratio of just about $4.20 for every dollar invested. So you could see these ratios range from about $2.60 in benefits on up to that $4.20 in benefits across these specific examples. Again, these are full-scale programs um, operating at the national, um, state, and district level. I'm going to add results um, from one of the other programs I talked about, Chicago's CPC's Child Parent Centers Program in Chicago, which is operating at the district level. They've had the benefit of longer-term follow-up, um, as I mentioned earlier, seeing the effects of crime, for example. So as a result, they've been able to aggregate and count in more benefits. And what they see is returns from their program in particular based upon the cohorts that they studied and evaluated uh, back in the 1980s when they went through preschool, returned somewhere in the range of $7 to $11 for every dollar invested. And lastly, I want to put up the results from Perry Preschool, which I mentioned earlier. So I don't consider this a full-scale program, and I don't consider this um, the kinds of result that we might expect on average across the country as preschool goes to scale. But I want you to be aware of the fact that there are studies that have looked at this program and calculated the returns, again, because there's very long follow-up to age 40 of these participants. There are numerous benefits that have been added in, and you can see returns um, that range from $7 in benefits for every dollar invested on up to $16 for every dollar invested. I would say that we could readily expect returns in the 2 to $4 range. And if we do really well in terms of implementing high-quality programs, so particularly serving more targeted groups, as was done in the Chicago program, we might see returns that are even higher. So the bottom line is I would argue that preschool is worth it on the basis of this evidence. We have fewer such benefit cost studies, particularly ones that um, analyze full-scale programs. And this stems in part from some of the challenges associated with doing this kind of economic evaluation, uh, particularly when we only have short-term findings. But the evidence from the studies we do have show that the proof that we can see positive economic returns, and that occurs both for part and full-day programs. I didn't show you the Oklahoma results, but they see similar results from their part-day program, from programs that operate one or two years, and for programs that are both targeted and universal. And ultimately, the returns that we can expect to see as programs are implemented and scaled up um, may vary from these, and it will depend upon things like program quality, the population served, and the local context. So let me turn now to my last um, message, which is that while we know quality matters, it's key to getting the kind of benefits and economic returns that I've been talking about. 
we're still learning about how best to both define quality, measure it, and institutionalize it. In other words, ensure that we're really seeing quality consistently across the programs that are implemented. So in terms of getting to quality, um, I highlight here three strategies that one might consider using. And in fact, all three are actually being used currently at the federal, um, state, and local level. One is to um, define a set of minimum program standards. You could do that through licensing, which typically sets a very low bar. But many programs um, that are regulated have standards, like Head Start, which has a set of performance standards that defines um, what Head Start providers are expected to deliver. And then you monitor to see that programs are complying with those standards. Depending upon where you set the bar from those standards, you can be reaching very high quality. A second is to use an independent accreditation process. This typically sets a very, high a very high bar. In the US, the National Association for the Education of Young Children is one such association. But this is typically a private process, so presently maybe about 10% of center-based preschool programs go through this kind of accreditation process. It's very arduous, it's expensive. So it's not a marker that gets used very often. And it also might tell us that you've reached that pinnacle, but it doesn't tell us something about where programs might be below that high standard. So a third approach that's um, increasingly gained traction is the use of a quality rating and improvement system, a QRIS. And this is based upon the notion that quality is multidimensional. So let's define what quality features we think are most important. Let's measure them. And then let's define a scale that says if you have this combination of quality features or this level of quality, we're going to give you one rating level, say one star. And then we move on up till you might have this highest level. Typically, it's four or five stars. Um, and that defines that something equivalent to accreditation. So now we have a continuum, and we can rate programs where they are on that continuum. And it provides both a metric of where they are and gives them an incentive to move further along the quality rating. So I've just illustrated here, you might have a center-based program that has three out of four stars. And they're incentivized to try to improve quality, and they know based upon the the QRIS, what they need to do to get there. And often, any of these strategies can be combined with the idea that we make the information about where programs are and their quality uh, transparent, particularly for parents, so that they can make choices that are informed by knowledge about quality, to provide financial incentives to providers to get to higher quality, particularly if they need support to get there, and to evaluate programs to see that they're actually achieving the high quality. The QRIS approach actually in the end is now one of the most popular. Um, every state but one is in the process of either with full-scale implementation or planning and piloting, um, putting a QRIS in place either statewide or in a several states that are shaded red. This is on a local basis. California example is doing it county by county, but most of the more populous counties are now participating in a QRIS. So one of the things we're starting to learn about QRIS is, is how well do they work as a mechanism to both measure and incentivize quality. One approach uh, that's been taken first is to ask, how well are these quality rating scales actually doing? Do they clearly differentiate between a continuum of lower, middle, and higher quality? So for example, I'm showing a three-star versus a four-star. We might ask two questions. One is, is that four-star program really higher quality along the metrics that we might use to measure quality compared to the three-star program? 
We can also ask, do children in the four-star program have better developmental outcomes from the time they spend in that program in their pre-K experience compared to a three-star program? And we can do that along the continuum, look for, to see, can we measure differences in quality? Can we see differences in children's performance? And we actually did one such study like that for the state of Delaware as part of its Race to the Top Early Learning Challenge grant. And a number of other states are undertaking similar evaluations and validation studies of this type. What we're learning from those studies is that the way that we've currently measured and defined quality in these QRSs is not doing as good a job as we would like in terms of clearly differentiating between lower and higher quality and differentiating between programs that don't do so well in promoting children's learning and those that do. So most of these validation studies, and I've shaded states that have such studies available and published among a recent cohort of state studies, most find that there is some improvement in measures of quality, ones that we use that aren't already in the quality rating scale. We see some improvement as we march up, say, the star ratings. But the differences in quality aren't all that large. And so it's not sharply differentiating between low and high quality. For the few studies where they've been able to look at the relationship between children's developmental gains over the preschool year as differentiated by the quality rating, here we see even weaker evidence. In some cases, we see no relationship between the quality rating scale and children's developmental gains, or a very weak one. Again, not what we'd like to see. So there are several other studies that are underway that will be released soon that can add to this map. Um, and when they do, we will see whether or not the kind of early evidence that we're seeing from these first few studies is, uh, is um, validated in some of these other studies, or might there be some of these QRSs that are actually doing a good job in how the quality rating scales are working. So the bottom line is, with the QRIS, the rating scales that we develop are only as good as our underlying measures of quality and the way in which we aggregate them to get to these ratings. But we know that QRISs can also play an important role in, we refer to the I component, the improvement part. So the quality rating scale may not be doing so well, but these are important um, systems for helping programs improve in quality. Another issue that relates to this is ensuring that the financing is there for programs to deliver quality, to cover the cost of quality, and supports to get to high quality. So here are my four key messages again. Preschool works, but high quality is the key to getting that outcome. Quality that we're talking about um, costs substantial resources, but it's worth it in terms of the economic returns. And at the same time, we need to continue to work on how we measure and ensure quality across the types of preschool programs that are implemented. A last few words about the implications for policy. Um, here we uh, think that as a basis of this evidence and other evidence that shows many children today do not have access to high quality preschool programs, that expanded access to programs, particularly high quality ones, would generate positive economic returns. Maybe not at the range of what was evident for Perry Preschool, but certainly in that two to four dollar range, which is a very strong um, return, much stronger than we might see from many other public sector investments. Second of all, it's crucial that um, as we um, implement preschool programs, whether current programs or expanding access to new programs, that funding is adequate to support high-quality programs. And then lastly, I would emphasize quality as a key component in thinking about any modifications to policies. So policy reforms or new implementation policy changes need to recognize, well, what are the implications of this particular policy change for our ability to deliver high quality programs? So for example, in looking at Head Start or the Child Care and Development Fund, 
are the changes that are in place now, might be considered for the future, going to be promoting quality, or might they make it even harder for programs to achieve quality? Will they ensure that more children have access to high quality? Likewise, the federal preschool grants that have been in place the last um, several years, are they there in ways that can support high quality? To the extent that the Elementary and Secondary Education Act is promoting early learning programs, in what way is that contributing to quality? And then lastly, the role that the federal government plays, particularly in providing technical assistance to the states and the programs that they operate, is that focused on quality? So I look forward um, to some discussion. I'm just highlighting a couple of these uh, publications, which I've particularly drawn on today. They were ones that were handed to you. All of these, um, all of this work is available on our website, as I indicated. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.